0: Welcome to Spotlight's Extra Time from Stile Antico. This podcast accompanies our series of films, released in spring 2021, shining a spotlight on four of our favourite pieces of music from the Renaissance. With the help of expert academic guests and musical illustrations, we explore the history and context of these works. In this podcast, we'll be digging a bit deeper with some extra material. Check out our Acast page for some more recommended listening, You can view the videos at www.vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash spotlights. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Welcome to Stele Antico's Spotlights, a series where we shine a light on four of our favorite pieces of music from the Renaissance. Each week we'll be joined by an academic expert to explore the historical and musical context of these masterpieces with musical illustrations along the way. Every episode will end with a full performance of our chosen Spotlight piece, newly recorded for this series. Welcome to Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford, and welcome to, to Dr Stephen Darlington and to Will Dawes, one of our baritones. Um, now, you both have quite a connection with Christchurch. You were director of music here for many years. How many years? Can you 32 read? years. 32 was, yeah. years, <laughs> <laughs> quite a veteran. And Will, you were lay clerk here. I was, before. only
0: for four years, so <laughs> under less Stephen. time, yeah. absolutely. <laughs>
1: Um, Stephen, could we start by getting some idea about John Taverner, about his life, about what life would have been like while he was working here and about the politics of the time? Can you give us an overview?
2: Yes, certainly. Uh, It's quite an interesting story because, first of all, we don't really know when Taverner was born. We think it was at the end of the 15th century, 1490s, somewhere around there. What we do know is that he crops up in a record of singing in the Church of St. Botolph in Boston in 1524. That's the first actual written record there is. And he was there because he was actually singing as a a member of the choir uh, in Tattershall, which was a collegiate establishment, which was not far from Boston, also in Lincolnshire. Um, So that's the first time we hear about Taverner, and we actually know about him. But he ended up here at what was Cardinal College when it was first founded by Cardinal Woolsey in 1526, because he was recruited by Bishop Longland, who was the Bishop of Lincoln, who was commissioned by Woolsey to find the best director of the choir that he could in the country to go along with the best choir that he could put together because he wanted this place to be the most you know, extravagant and opulent it possibly could be in every respect, um, particularly in its musical line.
3: Right.
2: But Tavener wasn't the first choice for this uh-huh. role. Interesting. What, what <laughs> happened was that Longland um, had targeted a man called Hugh Aston, who was working uh, in Leicester and Newark College it was in Leicester. And Aston, uh, who built up quite a reputation as a composer, was also singing in that choir. He turned it down because he had a very good deal for his whole lifetime where he was in uh, Leicester, and he really didn't want to move. So then we know that uh, Longland tracked down uh, Taverner, um, uh, who, would, uh, as you can tell, built, was starting to build up a reputation locally in Tattershall and in Boston. And Taverner turned it down when he was first invited to come here. <laughs> that was because he had, uh, he, I think the phrases he was in the way of a good marriage, which made, meant, which meant, I think both of these stories come down to money a little bit, I think. Mm. Anyway, um, what uh, eventually in 1526, when Cardinal College uh, was opened, uh, we find that Taverner is actually here uh, appointed as what was called the Informator Choristarum, which means he was the director of the Choristers. So that's a bit about how he ended up coming to Cardinal College.
1: Well, we don't quite know how they strong-armed him <laughs> into accepting the job, but we know that no. he was here. Well, we think end. it was
2: much. He was paid £10 a year, uh, plus, plus lots of extras. Um, and, you know, that was an enticement. I think I think the other reason is that he was attracted was because in Tattersall, they had something like 10 choristers, uh, uh, boy choristers, and 10 singing clerks, whereas we know that here in Cardinal College the plan was to have 16 boys and 12 clerks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was an opportunity to work on a bigger scale. But it's important to emphasise that um, back in, in, in Boston as well, and in Tattersall, they had a very rich liturgical musical life. Um, with you know, lots of music, masses and antiphons and so on being sung every day as part of the liturgy. So, you know, the, I think the attraction was definitely the fact this was going to be on a larger scale and they, they did a deal on the financial side.
1: Mm. Well, we, I think we're going to talk a bit about what kind of choir they had here a bit later on. Mm. Um, for now, we're going to listen to one of Taverner's pieces, "Christe Jesu Yezu, Pastor Boni which is set in the quite simple uh, syllabic style. So is it fair to say this would have been one of his later works or do we know when it was performed? Well,
2: it, I think it's almost certain it was written for performance here as part of the liturgy. Uh, every Every day uh, after uh, Vespers, there were three antiphons that were sung and one of them was uh, um, in honour of the founder of the college, uh, and, uh, William of York was, Cardinal was his patron saint. So the original text of Chris de had an invocation to uh, William of York. And I think the version that uh, we're going to hear is the one which uh, mentions Queen Elizabeth.
0: That's right, yeah. yeah, we've... But clearly, um, not contemporaneous, because um, Tavener was dead- <laughs> It was obviously long since- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so um, a nice bit of recycling uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And
2: there was a version in between, which refers to uh, Henry VIII. Ah. So, so there are actually okay. three versions of this. And that that's just,
1: presumably, would that have been the one that would, might have been heard here? Then?
2: No, the one that was heard here mentions Cardinal Wolsey. Mm. So the, the, they got the, the text got slightly adapted according to whoever <laughs> <laughs> was in charge. A little <laughs>
1: sycophantic, really, isn't it? <laughs>
2: exactly. exactly. Yeah.
1: going to move now to talking about one of Tavener's uh, more large-scale works, which is much more hearkening back to the old days of the Eton Choir book. Um, this is a, a parody mass, the Western Wind Mass, um, based on a melody, which, Will, would you like to tell us about the, the yeah, melody? Yeah,
0: sure. So, this is quite an unusual mass because, while we know that there were a lot of people on the continent writing masses based on uh, secular tunes such as L'Homme Arme, um this um, is the first example of uh, an English composer writing a mass based on a secular melody. So it's a a very simple tune, quite scalic, um, quite repetitive, uh, but certainly a love song and and nothing that would have been sung in church on its own. Um, So Taverner sets it really, really clearly. um, And you'll hear um, in in all of the movements um, that mostly it's in the the modern soprano part, are very clearly set with the words of the ordinary. Um, but occasionally in the tenor part and then the bass part as well.
1: So that was from Taverner's Western Wind Mass from the Gloria, um, but he wasn't the only composer to write a uh, mass based on that melody.
2: No, that's absolutely right. There was uh, another one by Christopher Tye and then one by uh, Shepherd. And uh, this is later, of course, the Shepherd. And what's interesting about it, it is almost exactly half the length of the Taverner. Um, and you can, you can tell here that there's uh, a composer who's been through. The, the Edwardian Reformation, which was uh, 1547 to 1553, and 1553 onwards was uh, um, Queen Mary was on the throne. So we think that sh- the Shepherd's version was written during that period. Uh, it, it, of course, the tune is very recognizable. Um, and you know, in one sense, you could say that uh, he's writing this piece because he was inspired by Taverner. Um, and uh, it, what, what happens is that it, it comes up with something which is entirely different, much more four square, if you like, but I think nonetheless appealing and enthralling because of that. I think another reason for uh, our confidence that some of these large-scale masses were written for performance at Cardinal College is the fact that he had such large forces at his disposal.
1: Yes, can you tell us a bit more about how the choir would have looked? Who would have been in it? Would it have been boys?
2: Uh... There would have been 16 boys and there would have been uh, 12 clerks so uh, this was on a larger scale than what he'd had to work with back in Lincolnshire. And uh, it, it, you know, these works, these masses are in six parts and one can just imagine the extraordinary sonority of having all those voices singing this music. Of course, it was very much in the tradition which had, uh, was exemplified by the Eton Choir Book collection and anthology of works at the turn of the century around 1500. And these were very long. Um, They were uh, very florid. Very
1: difficult from from my experience. Yeah, Yeah.
2: I mean, extraordinary virtuosity. And that's, that's, I think it's a remarkable thing to somehow imagine what this must have sounded like. I mean, they must have had uh, very skillful musicians, except of course, it's worth remembering that they were doing this music every day and these, these I should say these festival masses were obviously not sung every day but the the sort of liturgical round involved a huge amount of music most of it plain song in fact and uh so it was it was sort of in their blood and I've often had a um a theory that um, there might have been some additional improvisation which would have gone on from these singers, you know, apart from the, the, the sheer f- florid writing that we already know mm-hmm. about.
1: Sanctioned or unsanctioned.
2: <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: And what uh, kind of role did Taverner have, you know, as the Informata Choristarum? What was his job? I mean, he, he composed a lot, obviously, but did he sing as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, his primary role was to train the choristers. That's really what he did. Um, and and so and it's a curious conundrum, isn't it, that that we remember him as a composer, because of these great works of art, which which uh, we have copies of uh, and and have been revived in the last fifty years or so, um, but but what he was doing day by day was training these singers. Uh, we do know that he played the organ, so he could do that. Um, but it, it, and obviously the job included composing, because there were so many. Uh, liturgical requirements for music. There was quite a large repertory already in existence, um, but uh, and so it was just what you did as a, as a director of music, we would call you, call you these days. Uh, you just wrote a lot of music and um, uh, it's a remarkable thing, I think, really. Uh, he was first and foremost, just to summarize, a, 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 a teacher, uh, working in this liturgical context and then secondary consideration was a composer in a way
0: and it's great to be here with you because you are a sort of direct descendant of that tradition and it's, I find it fascinating that um, the choir was set up with 16 boys and 12 clerks and that is still what we have here Um yep, it so um, it's good that we're able to kind of if we want to hear what Tavner's music sounded like, we actually have a pretty good idea because we, hear, we can still hear it in this building, um, in this very building that we're in right now to, to this day.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: And one of those large scale works that we were talking about is, is our spotlight piece, Ave Dei Patris Filia, um, which is a votive antiphon. I've never really understood what is a votive antiphon. <laughs> I wonder if you can
2: tell us. Well, antiphons were were really um, um, plain song uh, um, uh, passages. Sorry, I need to just can I answer this? Stop and start again. Yeah, <laughs> because this is I'll, a difficult I'll ask the question.
1: question again. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'll ask the question again. Are we still good to go? Um, one of those large-scale works that we've been talking about is our spotlight piece, the Ave Dei Patrisphilia, which is a votive antiphon, and I've never really understood what that means. Are you able to elaborate?
2: <laughs> well, the, the votive bit is that it's a prayer to somebody, and this is a, a, a prayer in honour of, of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Um, the antiphon bit is it's a bit of a misnomer as far as these large-scale Um, polyphonic works are concerned, because it might be more correct to describe them as as anthems than as antiphons, because the antiphons were plain song sentences, which were before and after uh, verses of the Psalms. That's that's really where they uh, occurred in the liturgy. Uh, But what happened as, as composers were encouraged to write to more devotional texts, is that you get these anthems included. And in here in Cardinal College, uh, um, at the end of uh, Vespers and after Compline, they would have sung these, um, I'll call them anthems, but we now call them antiphons, um, uh, as as part of the liturgical offering at the end of each day. And of course those works were by and large uh, um, shorter than, the, the large-scale masses. Mm-hmm. I have to say that Ave Dei Patris Filia is, is, is clearly an exception. I mean, there Quite are three large-scale antiphons <laughs> by Taverner, and this is one of them.
1: Yeah, uh, Will, we, we normally put this at the end of our concerts, don't we, this along with some of the other large ones that we do. How does it feel, as the performer, how does it feel when we get to the end of the think, oh, it's nearly the end, nearly beer o'clock, and then we... Turn the page I think it there's a, to sing? There's a
0: real thrill about seeing something at the, at the back of the, 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 the music pack that we have in our concert folders. And um, it's, it's, it's wonderful because, I mean, it's... Firstly, they're quite well-scored, so everyone gets a bit of a break, and to a admi- vocal break, and gets to admire um, the other singing going on in the group at that time. But um, you really do need to kind of um, have, a, have a rest afterwards because they're, they're intense pieces. And pieces which just fill performer and audience, hopefully, with with a great amount of joy, and always finishing with these amens which just take your breath away, sometimes quite literally for the singers. But um, yeah, a thrill to sing.
1: So that was the amen from O Splendor Glorie, with John Taverner's name at the top, but uh, I believe there is some discrepancy about whether or not he actually composed that bit of it. Is that right?
2: It's the sort of thing that scholars absolutely love, you know, mm-hmm. being able to try to show by looking at the, at the style of the music that, no, this really wasn't by all by Taverner, it was by somebody else. But to be fair to those who have questioned uh, his authorship of the whole work, there is one source in the Baldwin part books where um, the second half of the piece uh, has the inscription uh, Dr. Tai written underneath it. And that, that of course, set the hairs running um, because y- y- you know, you, you, you'd have to delve quite deeply to find a distinction between the first and second half. But I do think the distinction is there. It's noticeable in the fact that there's much closer imitation um, in the second half than there is in the first half, which is quite similar to what you find in Tai's "Eugene uh, Bonnet, Mass. Um, and uh, you've just pointed out about the, uh, the Amen. It's, it's uh, I, I don't know how it feels for the singers, but it, um, I can imagine that it feels slightly different from the arm in at the end of you know a movement from a gloria to just mass or
0: yeah you're right I mean? it definitely does and you, you you feel very as you say very close imitation between all the parts and um, normally it's just sort of three notes da, 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 da. you can really hear that as, as it bounces around uh, between certainly between the lower two parts um,
2: yeah I mean I think the what's interesting is whether this was a collaboration because that that has been put forward as a theory, or whether what I think is more likely that it is a completion, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that I mean tie. do uh, we know
1: whether they work together at all. No, I don't
2: think there's any actual evidence that they work together.
1: talk about this in nomine, which is a little section taken from the Benedictus from Taverner's Missa Gloria be Trinitas, and it somehow exploded into a sensation. It would have been a meme, I suppose, of its time. Can you tell us about how composers took inspiration from Taverner and, and ran with it?
2: Well, I think that the short answer is that they thought it was just exceptionally beautiful which if anyone who's heard it, or for those of you who are involved in singing it, I think you could confirm that that's the case.
1: And there's this, this uh, plain chant line running through the center of the whole thing, of the mass, and then the subsequent versions. I know I've, I know I've played the viol, cons, some many vial concert versions, and you know, often you, You sort of think, oh, I don't want to be on that, the boring part. But actually, it's so stunning. And and Will, I know you often end up on those kind of long plane chart lines. It's so stunning to be in the centre of of everything going on around you. What do you think?
0: I completely agree. I mean, sometimes you feel a bit like a statue that that everything else is just sort of revolving (laughs) around. And you get to sort of uh, hear all this music and and feel as though you are the sort of the fundamental part. Um, And certainly, I mean, we call them Gumby parts, which is a bit harsh (laughs) because... um, But actually, they are... Essential to the to the structure and the harmonic development of of, of each of the pieces that they're based on.